Many of us, when we really look at our lives, can feel sort of insignificant in terms of what's going on in the kingdom of God. We look at people like the Apostle Paul, or like Peter, or like Martin Luther, or like Billy Graham, or Johnny Erickson Tata, or Francis Chan. We look at these people, and we compare ourselves to them, and we think, well, what do I really have to offer? I'm just an ordinary, normal human being. Well, today I want to look at the life of a man 2,000 years ago who in many ways may have been kind of an ordinary person. He was kind of an obscure guy. He's not one of those guys that you really focus on that much when you do Bible study or even when you look through the book of Acts. But he was a man who had an incredible impact on the direction of Christianity. His name was Barnabas. Now, as I said, Barnabas is a guy, we may know of him, we may know that name, we may know a little bit about him, but oftentimes he's not so much in the spotlight. It's not very often that you see curriculum in Sunday school classes focusing on Barnabas. You don't see that many Christian books written about Barnabas. You don't hear many people say, well, let's do a study in the life of Barnabas. You hear people saying, well, let's do a study in the life of Paul, or of Peter, or of King David, or of Jesus, or or, or of these other people, but you don't hear many people say, well, let's do a, a study in the life of Barnabas. You don't hear many parents who have a newborn son, well, let's name our son Barnabas. Maybe Paul or or Simon or, or or David or something like that, but you know, maybe parents are scared of the nickname Barney. Um, not sure, but but anyway, you don't hear many people name their kids Barnabas. But Barnabas had an incredible impact on the direction of Christianity. You see, from from a human perspective, you can make an argument that without Barnabas, you would not have the Apostle Paul. Without Barnabas, you wouldn't have the book of Romans or the other New Testament letters that Paul wrote. Without Barnabas, you may not have that many Gentile Christians. Without Barnabas, you may not have the Gospel of Mark. Now, that's just from a human perspective. God could still work in other ways. But Barnabas had an incredible impact in people's lives. And today we're going to look at this amazing man and see how God worked through him and then see how God can work through us in the same ways. I mean, not identical ways. We're probably not going to help someone who actually writes some of Scripture. But at the same time, it points to how we, just in the way that we live our lives, can truly have a lasting impact on the kingdom of God. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 4 today, uh, but we're actually going to be looking at three other passages in Acts as well. If you look in your bulletin, you'll find a listing of the other passages. Uh, so if you want to, you can mark them all. But we're going to start out in, in Acts chapter 4, looking at this man, Barnabas. We're in a series right now called Turning Points. And Turning Points is all about the significant events and the key shifts that took place in the early church to accelerate, accelerate the spread of the gospel. We're seeking some key principles from the early church to apply to our lives and our context here today to see the gospel go around more effectively in our own communities. And today the, the turning point that we're looking at is called the Barnabas Factor, the influence of encouragement about how if we live lives that are encouraging others and and graciously point others to Christ, we can have a tremendous impact and even reshape the course of history in various ways. So we're going to start out in Acts chapter 4 and look at four different snapshots of this man Barnabas and how God worked through him. So we're first looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 36 through 37, when Luke, the author of Acts, first introduces Barnabas. It says in verse 36, Joseph... A Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned 
and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So we, we see there's this man. His, his birth name is Joseph. The, the apostles give him the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And we think of nicknames, and nicknames can come from a variety of sources and really have a variety of meanings. I think of nicknames I've had through my life. I can think of three main nicknames. Um, I'm, I know it's kind of scary in sharing these because I'm not seeking to resurrect them, but to, but to show a point. Uh, one of the nicknames I had was in my final year of college. Uh, some of my friends called me B-Dog. Um, there wasn't any meaning behind that nickname except that it started with B-Dog, started with B, which was the first name of my name, Brandon. Um, I don't know where that name came from. That's just what people called me. Then I think of while I was in seminary, I worked at a landscape supply company in the summers. And a lot of the people who worked there, at least in the, in the section I worked in, had nicknames. And so one day our general manager said, you know, Brandon needs a nickname too. And so they spent a couple days tossing around different ideas. And somehow they eventually landed on Bronco as my nickname. Again, I don't think there's any real meaning behind it. Some of the nicknames there did have meanings. Uh, not always nice meanings. One of the guys there, um, his nickname was Falcon. And it was because he had a large nose that people said looked like a beak. He took it in stride. And, I mean, that's what people mainly called him. Um, but, you know, he was a good-natured guy. It went all right. My nickname, Bronco, didn't really have any sort of meaning that I knew of behind that. I didn't really care one way or the other. But that's a nickname that stuck through my years of working at the Landscape Supply Company. So those are nicknames that, you know, just come from someplace, but they don't have a lot of content behind them. I had a third nickname in middle school for a couple years that did have a little bit more content behind it. It was the nickname Chicken Legs. Um, it came about one day in gym class. I was probably in sixth or seventh grade. We were playing softball outside, and there was a substitute teacher there that day. I didn't know who the substitute teacher was, but he was just there. We were playing softball. I had a good hit. I'm out there running around the bases, and the substitute teacher yells out, Look at those chicken legs run! From that day on... A lot of my friends started calling me chicken legs. I think it was a bit of a slam, uh, kind of making fun of my, my skinny legs. Uh, but I didn't take it that way. I thought it was kind of endearing. So for the next few years, some of my friends called me chicken legs, and I took it as a term of endearment. I kind of liked it, um, even though I think it was mocking my skinny legs. Skinny legs did work well for me a few years later in track in high school. Um, but that chicken legs is an example of a nickname that has a little bit more content behind it because it was referring to my skinny legs. Now, the name Barnabas is a nickname that had incredible meaning behind it. It wasn't just given randomly uh, like Bronco or B-Dog. It was, it was given with a sense of meaning. It was given to, to, to Joseph from the apostles, the original followers of Jesus who are now leaders in the early church. And they gave him this nickname because it means son of encouragement. His character, his, his personality, who he was, he lived an entire life of encouraging others and building others up. And we see a glimpse of this here in verses 36 and 37. We see a generous spirit that is a sign of the encouragement, the other-centeredness that Barnabas had. It says that he, he sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And this was a, a relatively common practice that when there was a need in the church family, someone would generously give something, even selling a field or a house they didn't need. And Luke specifically points out Barnabas, probably because he's going to become more prominent later in the book of Acts. But he has a very generous spirit, and this is an important quality for those who want to be encouragers. 
Because when we encourage others, we are pouring life into them. We're bringing some sort of benefit to them that may not directly benefit ourselves, but it benefits them. There's a spirit of generosity there. But you think about the opposite of generosity, stinginess. That's what happens when we focus on ourselves. We want to keep our money and our possessions to ourselves. We may want, and stinginess, uh, that self-centeredness that, that flows out of, may lead us to um, want to focus our time on what we want, to focus our attention on ourselves, to focus conversations on ourselves. You think about conversations you can have with others. You know, there are some people you talk with, all of us fit this category sometimes, but sometimes you're talking with people, and it seems like no matter what the topic is, the conversation always comes back to themselves. Their problems, uh, their, their achievements, their dreams, their life. And when you're around people like that, that everything is centered on themselves, it can be very draining. Like I said, we can all fall into that trap at times. But that's the opposite of a generous spirit. Because a generous spirit says, I'm going to give to the benefit of others. Whether it's like, uh, like Barnabas here, giving uh, money from the sale of a field. Maybe it's giving our time giving our energy, being intentional to give compliments or or expressions of gratitude towards others. A generous spirit is a big part of what creates an encouraging spirit in a person. We see, first of all here in Barnabas, this generous spirit that that hints at his broader character. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man who was persecuting the church. He hated Jesus. He hated those who, who proclaimed Jesus. So Paul was literally doing everything he could to destroy the early church. Now I want to fast forward to Acts chapter 9. So flip over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to see an instance, uh, the next episode with Barnabas and Acts, but we're going to see an instance where the Apostle Paul, a couple of years after he came to know Christ, he tried to go into Jerusalem to meet up with the church of Christians there. Pick up with me in verse 26 of Acts chapter 9. It says that when Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So we see that Paul tried to go into Jerusalem. And he'd been been a follower of Christ for a little while. He was not well received by the church in Jerusalem. And I think, you know, somewhat for good reason. They were a little bit timid in the, man, in the, in the face of this former persecutor. Because they knew who he, what he was like before, that he was literally imprisoning and killing Christians. And I imagine there, there was a lot of timidity and fear there of wondering, okay, we hear about Paul and what he's doing, that he has come to Christ. But is that really real? Or is it just some sort of sinister plot to infiltrate us Christians, to gain our trust and then stab us in the back and destroy us. And so the church in Jerusalem was very wary of the Apostle Paul. But enter Barnabas, who essentially begins to sponsor this former archenemy of the church. 
Barnabas knows something about, about Paul and about his conversion, about how he'd been preaching about Jesus. He trusts Paul. And so Barnabas comes alongside Paul. Literally, was, it, it says Barnabas took him. It's like taking him under his wing, brought him to the church, and spoke up on his behalf. And I can't imagine this was all that easy for Barnabas. Yes, he has this encouraging, gracious, generous spirit. But at the same time, Paul probably imprisoned some of Barnabas' close friends sometime in the past. That's, only, that's a big hurdle to overcome, that, that forgiveness. And even if Barnabas forgave Paul, I think it would still be a natural inclination probably for any of us to say, well, you know, this looks like a very sticky situation. It's very messy. I think I'm just going to steer clear of this, kind of see what happens, let it sort itself out. But Barnabas steps right into that situation, comes right alongside the Apostle Paul, and then creates reconciliation and peace between Paul and this church in Jerusalem. And we see this peacemaking that Barnabas instituted or initiated here led to gospel growth. It says that there is peace throughout all these areas, and the church was strengthened, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So now I want to fast forward again. This was the second episode where, where, where Barnabas comes, take Paul, takes Paul under his wing, um, and then uh, creates some peace there. And I want to fast forward about six to eight years. We aren't sure exactly how long, but, but fast forward over to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Uh, Paul, in Jerusalem, we read that he was facing some persecution. And so to protect him, the Christians there had him sent to Tarsus. Tarsus um, was the hometown of Paul. And so they sent him back there, and the gospel continued to expand at that point. And we fast forward perhaps six, eight years or so. We, we really don't know what Paul was doing exactly during that time. But we see that the gospel is expanding in its new lands. And I want to pick up Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26, which is the next uh, the scene, the next snapshot of Barnabas' character. We see verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them of the, of the good news of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of, gra- of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So we see that, that back with that persecution that Paul instituted in Jerusalem, Christians were scattered all over the place. Some of them went up to Antioch. Antioch was a city about 300 miles to the north of Jerusalem. Some of them went up there. There were a lot of, I mean, there weren't that many Jewish people there necessarily. There were a lot of Gentile people, non-Jewish people, Greek people, and they were beginning to come to Christ. A, a small gathering of Christians was forming up there, and word about this got back to the church in Jerusalem, which was kind of the Christian headquarters at that time. And they wanted to find out, okay, what's going on up here? We have these Gentiles coming to Christ. 
is this good? What's going on? And so they send someone up there, and it's very important to, to, that they send the right person. They send Barnabas. Barnabas goes up there and graciously affirms the Gentile Christians. Now, I said it's important that they sent the right person. Because imagine if someone went up there into this new environment with, with people who did not naturally get along with Jews. Um, Jews and Gentiles, I said last week, mixed about as well as oil and water. They didn't like each other. They didn't get along at all. And now these Gentiles were coming to know Christ, which was exciting. That was a part of God's plan. But the church in Jerusalem sent a representative to find out what's going on there. Let's investigate this and see if it really has the mark of God or not. Now, if they had sent someone who was a racist or who wasn't open to new things that God wanted to do, this could have squelched this young Christian community very quickly. They could have discouraged that Christian community. They could have brought a bad report back to Jerusalem and just squashed this young church in Antioch. But the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And he was extremely excited about what he saw God doing there. Verse 23, it says, When Barnabas arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. I mean, he's excited. He sees the mark, the hand of God there. And so Barnabas sets up camp there in Antioch to begin to teach them, to begin to help them to grow. I mean, you just see this gracious, warm, caring heart in him. He cares more than anything else about seeing people grow closer to Christ. But we see even a greater glimpse of, God, of, of Barnabas' heart in what he does next. He recognizes, you know, the church is growing here really quickly. I need some help in teaching and helping these people grow. He remembered the Apostle Paul, then, then uh, in those Jewish contexts known as Saul. He remembered that Paul was a tremendous teacher and a tremendous leader. Remembered Paul is somewhere over there by Tarsus. So, so Barnabas set out to Tarsus to look for Paul and to bring him back to Antioch in order to help teach and lead this church. I mean, I think about the humility that Barnabas displayed here. He wasn't worried about keeping himself in the spotlight. He wasn't worried about um, being uh, the main man there. I mean, he recognized that Paul has tremendous gifts. He has a tremendous anointing from God. But he's willing to go get Paul to bring him back because he's concerned not about his own, um, his own prestige, his own influence in the church. He's interested in helping the church grow and helping people know Christ. So he brings Paul back, and we see in this, Barnabas' incredible humility. Because like I said, he didn't try to keep the spotlight for himself. And we even see more of his humility in the coming chapters of Acts. Because Paul and Barnabas worked together uh, for several years uh, ensuing, including traveling around the Roman Empire on missionary journeys. And we see during that time, and really, it's a subtle but a really cool shift that takes place. Because for a while, Barnabas is the one who is prominent because he's the one who recruited Paul. But then after a while, Paul's gifting, Paul's anointing from the Lord began to shine through. And Paul gained more and more prominence. For a while, whenever Barnabas and Paul are listed, they're listed in that order. Barnabas and Paul. But then you get in Acts 13 and Acts 14 as they're on their missionary journeys. Paul begins doing and, and teaching some really, really cool things. And then you see a shift that takes place. No longer is it Barnabas and Paul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. It's a subtle shift, but it's very consistent as you look in chapters 13 and 14. And what this represents is that Barnabas is beginning to take more of a back seat. Paul is becoming more prominent. 
But there's absolutely no indication that this bothers Barnabas at all. Because he has this gracious, generous spirit that cares more about building up the church and pointing people to Christ than about getting notoriety and fame for himself. Now, sometimes when we think of people who are gracious, people who are encouraging, people who are kind, we may think, well, they're just kind of weak. They're not that strong of people. They can't really stand up if people push back on them. They may not stand up to sin. Well, I want to fast forward now to the next episode where we see Barnabas standing very strongly for what he believed. This is fast forwarding probably another six to eight years. And Paul and Barnabas have logged many miles together of traveling around the Roman Empire on their missionary journey. So we're going to flip over to Acts chapter 15 for the final snapshot of Barnabas. This is actually the final snapshot of Barnabas in the entire book of Acts. So Acts 15 verses 36 through 41 it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So this is good. It's follow-up on the new believers in these young churches. Barnabas, verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So we see here that Barnabas' graciousness continues. Earlier, on an earlier missionary journey, when the going got tough, young Mark was with him, but Mark went home. He bailed out on them. He didn't finish his mission. And now as Paul and Barnabas are talking about starting out on a new mission, missionary journey, they're talking about whether or not they should take Mark. Paul says, says very firmly, no. He bailed on us before. He doesn't get another chance. I'm going, I'm, I'm going, and he can't go because he may bail on us again. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he says, no, we need to take him. Barnabas evidently sees something in Mark that he wants to nurture, that he wants to encourage, that he wants to see Mark develop and grow. He wants to give Mark a second chance. And they have such a strong disagreement that Barnabas and Paul part ways. Paul goes on. The rest of the book of Acts focuses in on Paul. Barnabas won't be seen again for the rest of the book of Acts. But I, I firmly believe that he continued to have a fruitful ministry. It's just the spotlight, as it always had through Barnabas' life, moved off of him. But Barnabas continued fruitful ministry. But this does raise an important point because Mark had bailed out on them and it raises the point of how does an encourager, how does someone who is gracious and kind respond to sin? Because some people may look at this and be like, well, Mark sinned. Barnabas was just kind of flopping over. He was ignoring the sin. He wasn't really dealing with the sin. We need to be harsher on sin. Well, I think it's important that we keep a balance here. And the balance is that there's a biblical call for forgiveness and grace, but also a call for repentance. And it's two sides of the same coin, that we're called to forgive and show grace, but not leave people in their sin, but call for repentance, which will lead ultimately, hopefully, prayerfully, to restoration. And this is the process, I believe, that Barnabas is seeking to work out in Mark's life. Yes, Mark did make a mistake earlier. He should not have bailed on them. But Barnabas wants to give grace. He wants to see repentance lived out in restoration. You look at Jesus. He had the same, same ideal, same, same way of living. 
Jesus showed tremendous grace. Jesus said, I have not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And you look at Jesus' interactions with people who are caught in various forms of sin. He showed grace and forgiveness. He showed compassion. But he also called for repentance. He would say, go and sin no more. Go now and leave your life of sin. So forgiveness and repentance are two sides of the same coin, but ultimately that seek to lead towards restoration. But if you only point out people's sin, if you only have a condemning spirit, you're going to end up crushing most people. And so we need to balance the call for repentance with that gracious, forgiving heart. And in the end, time shows that Barnabas had it right with Mark. I mean, Paul definitely did some great things, obviously, throughout the rest of his ministry. But Barnabas definitely made a wise decision there with Mark. Flip ahead to, or you don't need to flip there, but I'm going to refer us over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul, here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, is near the end of his life. But something has taken place. He sees the change in Mark, how Barnabas has nurtured him. And now Mark, Paul says, is useful to him again. 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Previously, Paul didn't see Mark as that helpful. Barnabas did. Barnabas restored him from his problematic past. And now Paul once again sees that Mark is helpful. This Mark is also the same Mark who wrote what we know as the book of Mark. The gospel, the biography about Jesus. So time has shown that Barnabas, in his gracious, encouraging spirit, in restoring Mark, definitely made the right decision. So now we turn to our lives in the 21st century. And we ask, okay, how, how can we apply this to our lives? I don't simply want to say, well, look at Barnabas, be like Barnabas. Even though, you know, Barnabas is a good model to follow. But I do want to point out an important truth about, about life in this world. Life in this world isn't easy. Back in seminary, I heard a quote. I've seen it a number of different times since then. No one really knows where the quote came from originally. It's pretty old. But it says, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Be kind, be encouraging, be gracious, be generous, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. That's one of the things that I've, as I've grown older, I've seen that over and over, that everyone you meet has faced great battles in the past, is probably facing some sort of challenge here in the present, it will face challenges in the future. So be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. I mean, I think of examples. I think of parenthood. You know, raising little kids, raising babies is hard work. It's not easy. When children get a little bit older, juggling their busy schedules, trying to continue to shepherd them, that's not easy. It's hard. As children get to be adolescents and teenagers, the stresses of wondering, what are they going to do? Where are they going to go? That's hard, too. Even parenting adult children isn't always easy. Think about school. And the peer pressure that students face, that's, that's hard. I think about uh, the feeling that, that, that students oftentimes get, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not popular enough. That's hard. It's a battle that students face all the time. I think of work, the stress of getting your work done. That's hard. Dealing with coworkers, uh, employees, uh, customers, that's hard. The frustration of being underemployed or unemployed, that's hard. The, the disillusionment that can set in of being in a job that really doesn't fit your gifting, that you don't enjoy, that seems like a dead-end job, that, that's hard. 
Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. I think of health challenges, of bodies that break down, of the, of the difficulty of staying motivated to eat healthy and exercise, of parts of our bodies that, you know, don't work as well as they ought to. That's hard. Relationships are hard. Marriage certainly is not easy. Singleness, it, it can be very, very challenging. Broken marriages create all kinds of new challenges. Conflict uh, with, uh, with other people is hard. The loss of a loved one, that's hard. I look at all these things and say, you know, life is hard. Everyone's facing battles. It's a call to be gracious, to be kind, to be an encourager. I picture a long afternoon of working out in the yard. You come inside, you're, you're dirty, you're sweaty, you're tired, your body aches. In those times, I don't think there's anything that quite is as refreshing and as rejuvenating as a nice cold glass of ice water. I mean, just it goes down your throat, it refreshes you, it encourages you. That cold glass of ice water on a hot, sweaty, dirty day is what a, a, a thoughtful word or act of encouragement is like in people's lives. I think of myself about maybe a couple months ago. I was just having a, a difficult morning. It was, I was kind of getting frustrated, kind of getting stressed out. I was busy, had a lot going on. A number of difficult challenges were w- really weighing in on me. And, you know, it was just kind of rough. And, and there was a letter sitting there on my desk. It had been there for just a couple of days. It came in the mail a couple of days before. And um, there was really a little stack of mail there that I didn't see as extremely urgent. But um, just in the busyness, I hadn't gotten around to opening that letter yet. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to open that mail there. And I opened this letter. And what it was was just a letter um, just sharing about how God had been working um, and the family member of someone I knew, and how uh, that person was just sharing about how God had been working in that person's life, and just expressed gratitude for the small role that I had played in that person's life. And as I was reading this letter, it was like the, that glass of cold water. It was just so refreshing. That, that letter, the encouragement I received from that just literally transformed the rest of the day. I mean, I was just discouraged. I was frustrated, stressed that morning. And I read that letter. And it just rejuvenated me. And that's what encouragement does. Now, oftentimes, when we talk about the difficulties people face, we don't really see a lot of those things. If you really sit down and talk with someone, you'll begin to see what difficulties they're facing, what battles they're facing. But this is why we are called to show encouragement. And it's not just looking at the life of Barnabas and saying, be like Barnabas. We're actually commanded throughout the New Testament to show encouragement to one another. Think of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It says, encourage one another daily. Because by that thoughtful word, by that thoughtful letter, by that thoughtful act, just even an expression of gratitude, saying, thank you for doing that. That meant a lot to me. That can really help someone get through a hard day. It can really encourage them. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how we, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. So we're called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, to encourage one another. A big part of that encouragement as Christians is pointing each other to God, knowing that he alone can ultimately satisfy us. We need the encouragement of other, other people around us. We're commanded to share that. But we also need to point people to God because he alone as Psalm 23 says, can lead us beside the quiet waters and the green meadows and restore our soul. 
Now, by encouraging one another, we live out what's, what I call the Barnabas factor, this life of encouragement that we may not see the influence that we're having right away. Just, I don't think Barnabas had any idea that he was going to be changing the world as he took the Apostle Paul under his wings as he restored Mark. But he did. Now, our influence, we don't know exactly what's going to take place as we encourage others, but we know that if we encourage others, graciously point them to the Lord, we will be living a life of influence in the kingdom of God. I want to close with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. It says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are now doing. Now, as the pastor of, of Freedoms, I have a unique vantage point where I, I see probably more than most people do here of, of the way that people treat each other, the people, way that people encourage one another. And it's really encouraging to me to see how this church family reaches out to each other, encourages one another. I want to encourage each one of us Continue to do this and do it more and more, encouraging one another and building one another up in the faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to this world not to condemn us, but to redeem us. We thank you that you show us grace, grace, that you offer forgiveness, that you offer encouragement, Lord, that in our weakness, your grace is sufficient for us. Lord Jesus, may we have that spirit of Barnabas encouraging others around us, not seeking the spotlight for ourselves, but seeking what will glorify Christ and what will build up the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you that you encourage us and give us grace. May we pass it on to others in Jesus' name. Amen.